Our first reading from God's Word today comes from the prophet Nehemiah, selected verses from the 8th chapter. Listen now for what the Holy Spirit is saying to you and to the church today. All the people gathered together into the square before the water gate. They told the scribe Ezra to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Accordingly, the priest Ezra brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could hear with understanding. This was on the first day of the seventh month, and all first day of the seventh month. He read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. Then they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So they read from the book, from the law of God, with interpretation. They gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions of them to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. This is the word of the Lord. Please listen for our next reading from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 4, verses 14 through 21. Then Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee, and a report about him spread through all the surrounding country. He began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The word of the Lord. Good morning. I thought it would be worthwhile for me to take a few minutes to introduce myself, especially since this is my first time stepping into this pulpit. I have to admit, it's kind of exciting for me to have this chance to introduce or reintroduce myself to you. 
because, as I'll explain to you soon, um, in a lot of ways, the coronavirus pandemic has made it challenging for me, not just on a personal level, you know, with my kids and my family, um, but also uh, because it has questioned my sense of calling as I've been trapped at home, not being able to do anything for the last couple of years. So as you've heard Pastor Greg mention, uh, I've been an inquirer, as they call it, in the PCUSA seeking ordination um, for about six years now, uh, pretty much since the time that I moved to Montclair. Um, it's been taking me this long because I took a very roundabout way to even decide to begin to go through the ordination process. Growing up for years, I thought I would become a college professor, uh, but my involvement in the church kept pulling my interests in different directions than you know, what I originally studied, which was linguistics. Uh, so I explored graduate programs in philosophy and theology until I realized that because I had studied linguistics, it made me a really good candidate for biblical studies. Uh, a lot of times people really enjoy it until they realize they have to learn a bunch of ancient languages, uh, not only Hebrew, but Aramaic and Ugaritic and all these things that you've probably never heard of. I thought that was very exciting, so I was like, this will be what I go for. And at the time, when I was finally ready to embark on my studies and go in that direction as opposed to theology, um, I needed to go to Princeton Theological Seminary. And the thing about Princeton, which had the faculty that I wanted to study with, um, I couldn't get just a Master of Arts in Religion. I had to get a Master of Divinity degree, which is the degree that most pastors in the PCUSA and other denominations have. So I was like, okay, I don't really want the ministry training, but it can't hurt. So I ended up there, and you know, the rest, as you know, is history. So towards the end of my MDiv program, I was debating which PhD programs to go on to, and I wasn't feeling really clear about the process. And then I heard about a position as an interim director of Christian education at Madison Avenue Presbyterian Church in Manhattan. So at the time, I think my experience working with kids was volunteering to be you know, the helper at Sunday school when I was a teenager. And um, I wasn't even Presbyterian at that point. But I was like, I, can, I got, came with housing, so I was like, I get to live in Manhattan for a year, see my boyfriend you know, at the time, live in New York City, figure out things. This sounds wonderful. So I applied. I was like, I've got nothing to lose. And I actually ended up with the job because I was from New York City, and apparently at that church there had been a lot of people in the position before who had been from other places but didn't really understand the ch church culture and community. Um, so they're like, Millie, you at least speak the language, so maybe you can do something about working with the kids there. Once I got there, I was really, really shocked to see that I loved parish ministry. I'd had other internships in churches before as part of my degree, but I really just loved um, working with the families, the kids, the adults. Uh, it was more intellectually fulfilling to me than I expected. And so even after my interim year was over, I stayed on. It was kind of hard to leave a good thing. People were coming, um, the programs were growing. I really loved my colleagues. Um, so I didn't want to leave that to go into academia. But it was still, you know, not my choice to become a pastor. The moment I think that all started to change um, came a few years into that position when I was actually pregnant with my first child. At that point, I remember I was setting up uh, an Easter egg hunt and you know, gathering responses. And this mom, who I did not know, 
came to me with a three-month-old in her arms and asked if she could come to the egg hunt with her child. And I said, of course, you can come meet other people. You can you know, be at the party um, and just enjoy yourself. And she's like, no, no, no. Is it okay if my kid also hunts the eggs? <laughs> I looked at her and I thought, this baby is like a lot, like it's not doing anything. I could not even see how, I mean, like you can hold up an egg and like I, I wouldn't even sure at this point if that child who was so young would even appreciate what was going on. But because you never turn down someone who wants to come to a church event, I said, sure, come, you can, you can collect eggs for your child. And I was like, okay, this, this person's a little crazy. But then about a month later, I gave birth to my own first kid, who's sitting over there. Um, and I became a mom for the first time, and I wanted to eat my words in my heart because I realized something that I didn't understand before when I was working as a director of Christian education with kids and families. Um, I had all these ideas like, this is how you teach kids, this is what you can do with kids at you know, certain points in their lives, this is how you can interact with them. When they're really firstborn, you can't do too much because they can't do anything. When I held my kid, I realized, you know, she's seven pounds, but like this is a whole person. And I, you know, I want to let my kid hunt some eggs. Like, I want my kid to be fully embraced by my faith community and be part of it. Because even though she can't do anything, I have a relationship with her that I want to interact with her in the context of that relationship. You know, sharing my faith was not about what can I get this person to learn or understand theologically about God, saying, you are part of this. And so this is what I started to feel really called to doing. I think Presbyterians are not always so great. You know, we're so, we have such a high theological tradition that it's not common for Presbyterians to look at little kids and, and, and think and speak relationally about how we can minister to them. So that's a short, concise version of how um, I ended up here um, in Montclair, in this church, and in this pulpit. So I hope you'll indulge me and um, join me as we turn our attention today to the gospel narrative, which actually shows a different kind of surprising encounter that Jesus has with his followers. So according to Luke, at the very, very beginning of Jesus' public ministry, I think this is actually the first time in the Gospel of Luke that you see Jesus talking publicly to a group of people. Jesus returns to a sort of backwoods, hometown, little village of a place in Nazareth to speak at his home synagogue. Before I continue, though, I want to pause to point out how sad it is that this is what he's doing, even though it's not exactly a sad moment. It says, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. When we're talking about the synagogue, Luke is referring, I mean, not just Luke, but you, you sort of hear the fact of the centuries of oppression that the Jewish people endured. Um, the synagogue only came to existence as a gathering place for Jewish um, worship and theological study after the first temple was destroyed and the people exiled to Babylon. So they got to come back eventually, as you know, and rebuild the temple and um, have a temple priesthood again. But over the years, um, they were first conquered by the Greeks and then the Romans. So the people that were installed in place in, um, as the Jewish leaders 
uh, they were considered corrupt by a lot of uh, people who were really devout because they had to obey um, the edicts and the regulations of the, the current empire. So um, instead of considering temple worship as the center of their spiritual life, a lot of devout Jews would gather in these synagogues to worship and study Torah. Jesus was one of them, and actually this is how a lot of other groups such as the Pharisees came into being. So they're people who are trying to make sense of God's teaching and hold onto their hope and faith through not just a few years, but generations of other people trying to take their identity and their religious faith from them. So when Jesus appears at the synagogue in Nazareth, it's not only not a surprise that he goes there, but his community is really glad to see him. And from Jesus, given his history with them, they're probably expecting another insightful and moving discussion of scripture, and they're eager for it. It's a Sabbath tradition in those parts. So as usual, Jesus gets up, this time reading a passage from the prophet Isaiah that describes a promise God made to God's people long ago of sending an anointed one to save them. But when he finishes the reading, instead of launching into an explanation of what he just read, Jesus simply declares, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. I know, by the way, it's easy for us as Christians who accept that Jesus is the son of God that a passage like this is not that shocking. But for the people who were confronting this idea for the first time, it was something very, very new. I, when I was reading this, I thought the effect might have been something like um, what would happen when we watched TV long ago and the newscasters would interrupt the program and break in with a special announcement, just sort of interrupt what you're doing and tell everyone something. And, and then I was like, did that even happen in my kid's lifetime? And the one time I could think of was when um, Osama bin Laden's killing was announced on the news. And you know, it broke into what was going on, what we were focused on at the time, and just switched the reality of what we thought um, we were expecting to enjoy or learn or do in that moment. So here, this is sort of what that felt like. Instead of giving an explanation, Jesus says, Nope, nope, I'm saying this is coming true right now. Christians really like to focus on like, ooh, let's get to these juicy parts of Jesus, you know, releasing the captives and healing and, you know, restoration and all those terms. But I want us to remember that those promises, you know, for the people hearing this message, they were not new promises. They've been meditating on this and focusing, praying about them for a really long time. And I wonder if when they listened to Jesus at that time reading this passage, if they also wondered, as we do, um, and living through the experience of uh, being under imperial rule, saying, what do these words mean to us today? You know, when you ask that question, the assumption is we need to do a little bit of critical reading and thinking to apply the scripture in our lives. Because, you know, when we read scripture, we either want to figure out what it is that we're supposed to do to make God happy, or because we want to understand some truth about God that allows us to continue to trust and hope and pray, even when it seems that God is not particularly present in our lives at all. I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. Um, it's actually what we do in church and what we do in Bible study and everything. Um, but that is not, again, what Jesus is doing. What he is doing is he is reintroducing himself. They thought he knew who, who he was. 
The people there, he's probably related to some of them. These are people that knew him as a child. Um, but he's saying, you thought I was just one of you, but I'm actually showing you that God has sent me, has anointed me to make true all the promises that we have held onto from God for these centuries, for these hundreds of years. And that was a radical thing. Um, later on, you'll see that people don't know quite what to make of it, but I wanna focus on what he's saying there today for us. Because today, when I hear these words of Jesus, I want to believe that these words are either about the long ago past when he was actually speaking at that moment, or maybe if you wanna say that they're still relevant to us, that it's talking about some far off point in the future when humanity might finally be free from suffering and pain and oppression. Um, theologians like to call this eschatological thinking, if you like some big words. But I find it hard to say that maybe when Jesus says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, that he's talking about us today, right now. And let me get back to what I was talking about with the pandemic. Because I have to admit, for the most part, um, I've led a privileged life. Uh, the coronavirus pandemic is actually the first time I think I felt something like what it might feel like to feel institutional despair. And I'm not talking about having personal difficulties or struggles, but going through something that affects not just me and my own family, um, but everyone I know and love. And, and this is the kicker, it's that no matter the choices we make or the beliefs that we wanna take or the money we have or the abilities we have, we can't really do anything to escape the situation because it's just so completely overwhelming us and surrounding us. Um, for me also, because of the pandemic I've mentioned, I felt at times maybe I need to give up my dream of pursuing ordination. You know, 2020 was a year that I was going to really get on board with the process because that's when my youngest one was in kindergarten. So I was like, okay, I can give up the really early childhood stuff and get going with this. But then that's when, as we know, society shut down. When things started to open up again, um, like a lot of other parents of young kids, I just felt I had nothing left in the tank to go down that path. You know, I was just completely wiped out. I don't, I don't quite feel the same way anymore, but there was a lot of soul searching like, is this what I really wanna do? Am I really capable of doing this? So I know my experience is still not technically anything close to what people who are actually you know, poor or blind or you know, imprisoned or anything like that. It's not really what they experience, but I, I, I do admit that I think for the first time in my life, I, I understand what it means to feel completely helpless in a situation. So when Jesus says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, I can't help but be skeptical of anyone who wants to say that means right now for you in this moment. But then I realize Jesus is not at that moment asking you to believe or accept anything. He's saying these promises that you've heard of that came from this God that you already know, they show you who I am. It's a means for Jesus to identify himself and to say he is there right now. He's opening our eyes to see that God is here, and not just that God exists, but that God is here for you today. So all of those things 
that he mentions has not yet happened, but the miracle was not so much that they would happen. It's that God would show up and do them. And if God is here, we can have hope that things will begin to change. And so what we can do when God shows up, we don't have, Jesus is not saying, come here, you got to join me in this work. I mean, yes, that happens later on. God is not saying you have to repent right here. God is just saying, I'm here. And so when God shows up, what we do as people of God is worship him. So to God, say, be glory forever and ever. Amen.